There's no take two. There's no just a little more purple. Warts and all. You've downloaded the VO Radio Show. And when I heard that voice, that was it. It was like a eureka moment. You know, the bells went off in my head. I thought, oh my God, where is that coming from? Welcome to the VO Radio Show. That is David Courtney, who's going to be our special guest this week, uh, talking about his illustrious career as a record producer, songwriter, uh, the man who owns the Walk of Fame in Brighton, and uh, the man who discovered Leo Sayer. Andrew Peters here in Melbourne. <laughs> and Robbo here in Sydney. How are you going, mate? I'm good. How's your week been? It's good. My week's been good, thank you. And you? Yeah, it's been a pretty good week for me, I must admit. I can't really complain. I've been sort of busy on real-time casting this week, and... Um yeah, that's been very successful, so I'm You've been happy posting with your photos all over Kathy Evans' Facebook page too, I've noticed. Ah, yes, you have noticed. Well, this, yes. is, uh, this is part of her new rules and regs that we have to take photos when we go to right. a session. Right. But it's good for me because at least I've got some kind of memory yeah. on Facebook <laughs> so I know what the hell I did this week. Yeah, what did I do this week? Oh, let me just check my phone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Oh, really? Was that me? God, I don't remember being there. Anyway... Uh, so there you go. That's what I've been up to this week. But Ooh. last week, um, we had the part two of the interview with Nick Tate, yes. who became extremely successful as one of the big trailer voices in the US. But the interesting thing is, my neighbour is a, a lady called Katie Bender. Now, Katie is an Australian, in mm. fact, an aerial skier to boot, who ended up what? in Los Angeles producing movie trailers at Trailer right. Park. Yeah. And guess who's sitting next to me? Katie. Oh, Katie. I'd say Katie. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> Hi, Katie. Hello. How are you Should doing? Should I call you Benny? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Most people call me Benny. All my all my close friends call me Benny, and I you're yeah. a friend now. So yeah, yeah, I'm allowed to. You're the neighbour. Okay. Well, listen, you got to give us the background to Benny, though. How's that? How's that come about? Um, just a good friend of mine. My, well, my last name's Bender, which was just not cool growing up as a gymnast. Um, yep. And then that sort of shortened to Benny one day, and so most of my ski friends and close friends call me Benny. Ah. Uh... Oh, well, yeah. yeah, Robbo from Robertson, Benny from Bender. There you go. It's a cool. bloody typical Aussie thing, isn't it? There you go. Shorten everything you can. Yeah, yep. that's right. If it's too short, lengthen it. <laughs> that's right, exactly. If it's dick, dicko. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. uh, but the interesting thing um, with Benny, of course, you've just been working on your first feature-length documentary. Yes, I've pretty much had no life. Um, basically, um, I, but after aerial skiing, I, I had a bad run of injuries and decided I, I couldn't ski anymore. So I moved to LA and I studied film and digital media and then I, with the intention of wanting to work in movie trailers, um, and I landed an internship at Trailer Park, So, which was so cool because Trailer Park is, is, is the best trailer company company in the industry. Um, mm. Mind you, it is a machine, so I had absolutely zero life, but um, I was happy to have no life in LA because I think it's a good distraction. It's a very strange place, LA. Um, but yeah, so I worked in trailers. I absolutely loved it. And the only reason why I moved back was because of the visa situation and we couldn't do anything about my visa situation. And I was also missing sport at the time because I'd been an athlete my whole life. So I um, I was sort of thinking about, you know, working at ESPN, or going into sports films. And at the time, I visited my ex-teammate, Lydia Lassler, who was current Olympic champion at the time in Utah. And so I went and visited her there and she was training into the water jump facility um, 
she had come back as a mother and I couldn't believe that. Watching her doing these triple somersaults with her baby on the side of the pool, I thought that was just crazy and she started telling me her next pursuit towards the 2014 Olympics which was to do a trick that only the men had done before now for the past 20 years. So the fact that she was wanting to narrow the gap between female and male capabilities in such a dangerous sport, I thought that would be incredible. And understanding um, the complexity of her backstory and the sport, I, uh, I thought that you know, there could be enough story there for a feature-length documentary. So soon after that, I asked her for her story rights and for the past three years, ever since that moment, I've been producing her documentary, which we finished the 99-minute film about two weeks ago and uh, we're just organising our entire release strategy now. We got a cinema release, which will be March 10th, 2016, so it's really exciting. There you go, and I've watched the last one. 14 months of, of this journey. Yeah, I think <laughs> and, Andrew uh, saw one of the older cuts, so you're very lucky. I did. I, I've seen the film. It's fantastic. Neighbour quirks. Yeah, yeah. Na- <laughs> yes, it is. A neighbour perk and a quirk. <laughs> quirk, but, uh, quirk, sorry. Yeah, Will to Fly yeah. is, the, is the film, so keep your eyes open for that one. It's a beauty. Wow, you've been busy then. Very busy, yes. Yeah. And, and um, it, it was tough um, working in film in Australia. Well, trying to do, you know, my first film here after working in L.A., um, obviously, I didn't have that type of responsibility in Los Angeles, but film is certainly familiar there and it's a lot easier to network. So I definitely had a lot of battles um, as an emerging documentary filmmaker in Australia. It was really tough. So um, I'm exhausted right now, but it feels amazing to have the film finished. So let me let me take you a bit deeper on that. What, what are some of the battles that you've faced as a first-time film producer in Australia? Um, one of the biggest battles was Screen Australia, which is one of our major film funding bodies. Um, none of their funding submissions really nurture em- emerging filmmakers. You are yep. expected to have done um, a feature-length film before, whether that's producing or directing, for you to even be eligible to submit. So it was tough because even when I had a rough cut, I, I couldn't even show them. Um, and, you know, they really base it on, on your resume and I think that's ludicrous um, because I think it should be judged on how strong your film is. So another avenue for documentary filmmakers in Australia, though, which is pretty fantastic, is the Documentary Australia Foundation and you can be at any stage of your production with any background. Um, so I hadn't done a film before, but given that my film had an impact component, um, so, for example, the main messaging from the film I've produced is... Um, empowering females, gender equality in sport. It also supports the importance of female leadership, mentors and um, encouraging girls to live their dreams. So because of that um, impact component, I'm able to submit to philanthropic grants through the Documentary Australia Foundation and raise philanthropic funding to partner with our films. So that's where I got some partnership. We have the Lord Mayor Charitable Foundation as one of our major partners and, and which is fantastic. So we're actually going to be premiering this film on International Women's Day. Uh, So we have a really strong ambassador strategy set up in the lead up to that. And the main, um, you know, goal is to really empower women through this release. I mean, guys love the film too. I mean, Andrew's seen it. it, So 
Mm. Um, I, men men can can um, you know relate to it too. We we structured this um, film for a mainstream audience. It, it, I mean, people might look at it and go, "Oh, aerial skiing. I don't really care about aerial skiing." But um, aerial skiing is just the vehicle that drives this um, story about this extraordinary woman who's been to four Olympic games and um, and her final pursuit is incredibly inspirational and the messaging um, very topical in the media so you've actually been doing all the legwork as well by the sounds of things um, oh my gosh well um, I I did create this film with my partner and be- between the two of us we have played a lot of different roles given the circumstance and not having a lot of funding support initially um, a lot of the funding support has come later when we've actually made the product we did have um, you know one of Australia's top documentary editors edit the film and we we also uh, brought out a, a movie trailer editor um, from Los Angeles to do a lot of the action editing which has really brought the film together and um, we had Thomas E. Rauch who is a very well-known um, composer in Australia um, score the film and he's done an amazing job on the score it's been six months in the making so we're going to be releasing a soundtrack in tandem to the release of the film uh, we've had a publishing deal to get a, a book published, The Will to Fly book, which is fantastic, which is about Lydia's life and the film. And we also have a study guide that is going to be um, in all the schools around Australia um, that will be talking about all this same messaging, targeting year sevens to 12 in uh, physical education and, and emotional behaviour studies. So I think that's going to be really great for our youth. Yeah. yeah. Mm, very good. I'm never going to bitch about being busy again. How about you, no. Robert? No, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, one of the biggest disappointments, um, I think, with going back to getting support from um, the film government body is that a lot of Australian films, and I truly believe this is why the film industry struggles here, is there's not much money, first of all, for the films, but then there's no money, well, not much money at all, for marketing the films. And marketing the films, as we all know, is being from the trailer industry, it, it's so important. You know, no one's going to turn up at the cinema if there's no marketing. So I think that um, we really suffer in Australia with that. There's there's one company that's doing a really great job with marketing and that's the Solid State based in Sydney. Um, but other than that, um, our major films here have to outsource to America and most of the time they can't really afford to pay the top trailer companies because they're used to having clients such as, you know, Paramount and Warner Brothers and, and Sony that, are, you know, paying these, you know, million dollar caps to get unlimited revisions. So it's tough. It's really tough. Well, that's the kind of stuff that Nick Tate was talking about. And one of the things he brought up was that he he actually got involved with the Gough Whitlam campaign to uh, get Gough elected. And it was the It's Time campaign, and it was based on the fact that uh, all the actors got together because television had no Australian content, no drama. It'll be very interesting, I think, now that platforms like Stan and Netflix have arrived in Australia. That's going to create more work, hopefully, for Australians because they're going to need more content. I was having this conversation, I think, the other day on when I was on the Triple M. Um, we were talking about The Will to Fly is one of Australia's first sports films, and it's crazy to think that because we're such a sporting nation and we should be doing more sports content because we've got amazing sports stories. Yeah, 
But I mean, one of the great mm. films uh, that came out in the last, what, five years or something was the the uh, movie-length documentary Senna. That's a great example of kind of what we tried to do as well. We wanted to make sure that, you know, if, if we were just catering to the aerial skiing world, we probably wouldn't get that many people to the cinema because it's not a big sport at all. But um, the the story behind it is, is special and Senna, oh my gosh, I just... I, I really impacted me. I love that yeah, film. Yeah, and the yeah. score is just incredible. Yeah. But let's get back to, to trailers. What is the role of producing a movie trailer? What, what was your role in particular? Basically, my responsibilities were I worked under the head creative director, Matt Brubaker, and, and another woman called Dana Flowers. Um, Matt worked more in theatrical and Dana was more in home entertainment. We worked for all the major clients, which is why I didn't have much of a life because when when you're working all day long, you're kind of, you know, you send out the trailer back to the client and then you've got to wait for their notes and you may not get a note till later on in the afternoon and then you've got to redo the graphics or you've got to get the notes back to the editor and then they might be staying late and being the person that's coordinating it all, kind of sitting there till the end of the day to make sure it's being sent out again for the next day's revisions with the clients. So I was running around all the departments. I'd speak to the editors. I'd speak to the graphics team. I'd be directing the voiceovers and making sure that all the clients' notes were, were getting handled well and then we'd send it back and then we'd have these sort of fibre sessions with the client once we'd done all the revisions and we'd sit there like as a team and, and we'd discuss creatively um, where the changes needed to be made. We had such big budgets to work with at Trailer Park, we could kind of pick and choose any song that we wanted, which was amazing. Oh, absolutely. So when you were directing The Voice, you were saying before that that they weren't actually in the studio with you. You were doing everything via ISDN. No, I think they have the best job on earth, these guys. I mean, they are literally, it's like you, Andrew, they're they're in their home, (laughs) in their home (laughs) studio, and uh, we just dial them up in the home, and I actually only, I worked with about 10 different voiceover guys and only once did I meet one of them um, at the office which I was really shocked when I met him because he wasn't very tall and you know he obviously had a big voice and so when he finally came in he was like hello Katie and like I looked down and I'm like looked down to shake his hand and like wow I didn't picture you to be small um, he but- wasn't an Aussie too was he? <laughs> no. oh, you're, yeah, you're thinking of Lofty yes <laughs> and good day Lofty Fulton if you're listening <laughs> but you know I, I, it was it was breezy to be honest working with the voiceover guys because they were so good that they got it so quickly I mean I think they were directing me yeah yeah <laughs> um I don't know just cool to deal with and always up for a little chat and because I had an Australian accent that always broke the ice as soon as I called them they're like oh, okay so what are you doing in LA where are you from and I think um half of them are my Facebook friends now so yes, <laughs> I'm sure but, you're yeah. right <laughs> but um no they were lovely to work with and I really enjoyed that I was working on the Magic Mike trailer. With the actors, usually we just get ADR read by, you know, step-in actors. So um, we had to get a a line re-read for Channing Tatum and I had to basically interview about 20 Channing Tatum um, doubles from LA and um, they were all piled up at Trailer Park. There were like 20 of them lined up at the (laughs) studio and it was just so funny. It was just like model after model after actor after actor that all sounded like Channing Tatum. I'm like, no, 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 no. Oh, we got one in the end, but um, yeah, that that was kind of. It's bizarre. Yeah. I always wonder why they don't just get the actor. Yeah, well, I, I think they won't do it. No, uh, they're too busy. They're on the next set. It, it really is hard. Sometimes I think they are available, but um, it's just. It was a whole new world for me when I found out that, you know, there are all these other actors in Hollywood that do 
you know, um, voiceovers for for the other actors. You know, yeah. there's there's the Channing Tatum file, there's the Mel Gibson file. You know, and there's just there's a whole heap of them that all sound like Channing Tatum, and I was, it was crazy. I had a bizarre one that came in from uh, my agent in New York, and it was uh, for a movie called Pearly Soames, which I don't think has been released yet, and it's a Russell Crowe film. And they had to do an ADR pickup line. So I got this thing and I said, OK, yeah, I can yeah, probably almost get away with a Russell Crowe. Until I heard the dialogue that I was supposed to copy. And it's Russell Crowe playing a New York Irish gangster in the <laughs> 20s. So not only is he a Kiwi living in Australia, but he's playing an Irish American in New York in the 20s. Almost is not good enough, Romeo. Do you want the job or not, Dingy? I, I miss the trailer industry, although I didn't have a life and, and you really, it, something at a company like Trailer Park, you feel like you're the paramedics of the film industry because we have the pressure that we have to sell these multi-million dollar films. And so it is, you know, it's up to the trailers to, to be amazing, to get people interested. What's your favourite movie trailer? Have you got one? Um, wow, that's... What about the favourite one you worked on? Um... Magic Mike was a really, really tough trailer. Um, uh, in the end, I think um, I was pretty happy with the way that went, but it was interesting. I mean, I'm a female and, you know, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like a, a trailer that was really geared for females. So that was fun. I got to use all the girly music that I liked and it was a bit cheesy, really. Um, <laughs> the Great Gatsby was probably one of my favourite trailers I've ever worked on and Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes was fun because the sound design was insane and um, and it was really, really fun to, to see, you know, what the editor sort of did with the sound design. I think there was something like 100, oh, 150 plus tracks of, of different sounds and it was really cool. Yeah, sound designers is pretty specialised too, really, aren't they? Oh my gosh, in trailers, <laughs> it's just like bang, bang, bang. Yeah, I'll just take my hand off my back. It, it, <laughs> some trailers really are manipulated by the sound. Yeah. <laughs> what, what's that? What's that? famous George Lucas line um, sound is 50% of the picture yeah it's probably true because if you take yeah. sound away it looks half the stuff looks yeah. feeble I think you and I had this discussion last week about sound and in pictures and all that sort of stuff and yeah. uh, it's something I forgot to mention is you know someone as great as George Lucas sort of pretty much saying well you know they're both as important as one another just, just on that, I mean, this is a general question for both of you guys working in the industry. Do you find it interesting when people come over to your house and they sort of walk into your TV room and they, they seem a little bit disappointed? Well, they uh, certainly be know, disappointed with mine. Because I was getting, you know, cause, you know, my point always is if, if I wanted to hear it in surround sound and, you know, sound amazing, I've got a studio out the back, I'll just take it out there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you should see Andrew set up, though. I mean, he has it made. He's in mm. Point Road Night, which is probably, you know, one of the most beautiful gems of Victoria, yeah. um, and he's got a cool studio, and I, I, I'm jealous. I, but I'm not. I don't need a studio, but I'm still jealous. <laughs> yeah, it's like I don't probably need one either. But, I'm, <laughs> but I love it. <laughs> but when, when you get inside the house, though, different story. Yeah, well, I was going to say, lots comes of champagne with bottles inside the house. <laughs> yes, that's right. Usually empty. <laughs> Why doesn't that surprise me? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know me too well, Robo. Yes, indeed. Yeah. I was just going to say, the, it comes with its pitfalls, you know, when you just got to walk out the back to go to work and you sort of look up at the clock and it's one o'clock in the morning and you think, what the hell am I still doing here? I do like that, but I, I, as we said before, the, the solitude thing, which seems to be a reoccurring point that everyone makes who works from mm. home, is, is an mm. issue. 
How do you find it, Benny? It, it's really hard. I mean, um, in, in the final stages of post-production, we were obviously um, working, it was kind of refreshing because we were working at different post facilities. So we were at the sound post and then the picture post. So we got out of the house and through the edit, we were also out of the house. But, you know, every now and then we had to work from our own home and, and you kind of feel stale after a while. Like it's, you, yeah, it's hard. It becomes a bit of a blur. And so it's, it's nice to um, sort of be at the end of production now and moving into the release. I think I'm going to have a bit more spare time on my hands. I might start thinking about some more sports stories on the side. But yep. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's really hard. Um, it can become really unmotivating and, and I think sometimes you do get to things slower because um, you, you're making that second coffee in the morning. I think the good thing about being here, and I'm not sort of banging on about this part of the world, but at least you can get out, walk on the beach, clear your head, come back, and you feel quite refreshed. I think that's important. I mean, I think it was hard for us in Melbourne because we were in the city, but if we had that situation down the coast or somewhere where we could do that, I think that would make a big difference. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Well, it's funny because your partner, Leo Baker, his dad is Ian Baker, yep. who's obviously, well, for anyone that doesn't know, he's a very well-known uh, director of photography and Fred Skepsi's director of photography. But he lives down this neck of the woods too. He does, he does. But, um, I mean, he, he doesn't really work from home, I guess, when he... I mean, he's a cinematographer, so when it's work time for him, he's he's off overseas or on set somewhere, um, and then he's back home for a certain amount of time and can just use that time to be in his veggie garden. <laughs> exactly. I was going to say, that's what he does, though. Yeah. That, that's where he cleans his head by getting into his veggie patch. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, we should get on to the rest of the show, but um, before we do, we should say a big thank you to Katie Bender for coming in, Benny. Yeah. And good luck with the film. And right. the trailer can be seen at? Uh, yeah, thewilltoflyfilm.com. You can check out the trailer and, and subscribe there for updates. Yeah, oh, and we'll beautiful. put that address up in the show notes anyway so people will be able to go and, um, and click on the link and go and have a look. Beautiful. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. Hmm. Pleasure. Yeah, thanks for your time. You, you, know, you know of Leo Sayer, wouldn't you? Thunder in my heart. Yeah, you know that, absolutely. Of course I do. Yeah. No, you don't. He's old, <laughs> like us. Another Australian now, too. Well, he is an Australian. He's yeah. been uh, naturalised, or whatever you call it these days. Living over at Bondi. Lucky lucky Leo. Mm, lucky Leo. Leo was discovered by our special guest today, a man called David Courtney. And the way he discovered Leo Sayer is really worth sticking around for. So check it out as we talk to David Courtney. The voice for the voices. This is the VO Radio Show. I'm a one-man band You know I can dance You know I can I didn't realise you were in Melbourne before you went to Sydney, because I spoke to you when you were in Sydney. I've been writing my autobiography, which is coming out next year, and, and then I talk about my, my escapades in Australia when I arrived there. I mean, I didn't... Yeah, I knew one person there when, when I arrived, and that was really only somebody that I'd spoken to over the phone, a man called Peter Hebbs, who was heading up Festival Records, and he was based in Sydney. But we'd never actually met, but we, we had come to... Uh, meet each other over the phone and agreed that he would be my representative there when I arrived there to uh, 
to live there and to work there as a producer. And when I arrived in Melbourne, I was greeted um, at the airport by two guys um, from a record company. And I'm trying to remember the name of the record company now. It'll come back to me eventually. But, oh, Martin Fabini. Yeah, Regular Records. Who was that band that he had a big hit with? I forgot on Regular. Uh, anyway. Probably Mental as Anything. Oh, yeah, there you go. You got it. Oh, good. I'm glad you got the memory. <laughs> anyway, so Martin and a colleague met me at the airport and they took me in a car straight off from the airport to a gig to see this band called Cattle Truck. What happened is we got in the car and we're driving along the coast. Now, I, you know, I'm sort of gog-eyed by now, as you can imagine. Uh, let alone going to a gig straight from an airport and, and jet lag. Um, and as we're driving along the coast there, the coastal road out of Melbourne, I suddenly look and I see this lovely shoreline, you know, with the, with the, with the water, and I notice this promenade railings. And I thought, oh, my God, they, they look just exactly the same as the promenade railings in my hometown of Brighton. <laughs> just as I thought that, suddenly the sign, I read a sign that said, Welcome to Brighton. I thought I'd gone into the Twilight Zone. <laughs> <laughs> it was incredible. I, I mean, the first thing I ever saw in Australia was this place called Brighton, which is where I come from. Now, I went to this gig and saw this band. Oh, they were wonderful. And, and they were my first production. Yeah, you did that. And also in Melbourne, you did the Shantuzis, who were very popular. Yeah, we had a, we had a number one hit with them. Um, I got together with them. Um, they were managed by a guy called Brad Robinson, who used to be an Australian crawl. Unfortunately, he passed away, I understand, which is very yes, sad. Yes, it was very sad, yeah. Um, and um, they were signed to, or being signed to Mushroom Records. And they were an eight-piece, four boys and four girls, which was quite a, quite a thing to, to, uh, to handle. Anyway, so um, I, I got together with them and... At that particular time, there was we just had that hit in England with um, Banana Rama's massive hit, a cover of Venus, which was originally by Shocking Blue. And I thought this sort of approach would be ideal for this band. So I started to rack my brains to think, well, what would be a good song to cover? And um, I came up with an old classic of Witch Queen of New Orleans, which was uh, done by Redbone originally, American band. And we cut the track and it was fantastic. And, and it just, it, it, it was just such an obvious thing to do really. And they did it brilliantly and it zoomed up the charts and it really began their career. It did, and their career then ended, but uh, guess what? They're back together. Uh, well, what a surprise. <laughs> uh, Everybody goes through the Sinatra syndrome. They don't give it up and then come back again. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. You know, there you go. You know, look, you live off your hits, and, and why not? You know, that's your pension, that's it. And and why not, indeed? You know, and, and, and so many of them do it, and that's how they earn their living now, and, and good luck to them. And, and, of course, we're living in that day and age where even the likes of The Who and, and everybody else, they go out and do these mega concerts, you know, arena concerts but at the end of the day they've got to be there just playing their hits and it's really a, a very very high-end version of karaoke it's well it's probably more than that i think it's more instead of selling a greatest hits record which when people bought records but these days no one buys records so the only way you're going to make money is to get on stage and take the box office well it help, it's okay for me as a, as a composer but it doesn't help you uh, otherwise unless you're a live performer yeah but and that's what the audience want to do you know they want to stand there and they want to or sit there and they want to hear the hits and yeah. the minute that the guy comes on and he says now I'm going to play you a track from our latest album they all talk about where's the bar yes yeah, sad but true but let's wind the 
clock back because you're now celebrating your 50 years in the biz. Everyone has something that happens in your life that directs you. What was the thing that got you in- involved in music and songwriting? Oh, right. Well, what got me involved with music? Um, and I'm going way back now for when I was a kid. Oh, it must have been about 10, 11 years of age. I used to sit with my ear glued to the uh, to what was called a stereogram. I was fortunate enough that my father could afford one of these stereograms. But I had my ear literally... I. I it was incredible. I used to sit with my ear literally up against the speaker so I could feel the vibration. And I used to sit and listen to what was early radio then um, with, a, with a guy over here. He was called Uncle Mac. And he used to play all these records in those days. It had been people like Danny Kaye and, and, and all of that. And then started to hear the early rock and roll. That's what grabbed me. As soon as I heard Bill Haley, and it was the first album I ever bought, uh, that was it. I was hooked. And... I used to sit and watch the TV shows over here that we used to have called Six Five Special and uh, Oh Boy. And there'd be all these pop rock stars coming on there, people like Cliff Richard and Adam Faith, who I came to be the closest friend of and I was with him to the day he died. Um, and, and all these early, early pioneers of rock and pop in this country. And I used to sit and glue to the set and watch this. I was hooked. I, the passion was flowing in me. That's all I ever wanted to do. And I uh, eventually, when I was about 14 at school, I'd formed my first band with my best mate. And um, he made his own guitar in, in the woodwork shop. And I managed to blag my father into buying me a drum kit because I wanted to be a drummer. And, and we started. And, you know, we started in the youth clubs. And, and the band went through various uh, different members as it, as it developed. He, he, he dropped out and others came in. And, it, and better and better quality musicians, which I learned a lot from. And I was on the road between the ages of 15 and 16 because in those days you could leave school at 14. And I couldn't wait to get out be honest with you yeah. um, so I, my lifestyle at a very very early age was not the norm and um, so by the age of 16 I was on the road I was in Germany uh, we were playing in clubs up and down the land and we had a, um, a residency in a very famous club in London called the Bag and Owls which is in Kingley Street which runs parallel to Carnaby Street and it's where Jimi Hendrix was discovered and the club was owned by a an agency called The Gunnels in uh, partnership with uh, an artist called Georgie Fame. And this was the club. And we were the resident band there. And every night the audience was made up of the Beatles, the Stones, the Small Faces, the Kinks, the Walker Brothers. That was the audience every night. And Georgie Fame and, and, and others. And I used to see McCartney there, and that's where he met Linda. You know, he would be there, escorted by lots of different women. And, and there I was at 16 years of age, playing drums in this band, in this club. So you could pinch yourself and go to heaven right there. So my exposure into this industry at a very early age uh, was, was quite incredible. And the journey thereon, from moving from a band to becoming a composer and discovering Leo and all these things, it's been an incredible journey for over 50 years. When I'm sitting down and writing this book, which I've now finished, and reliving it as you're writing it, and of course the wonderful thing is, if you're involved with music, and especially in my case, you know, and you've composed music as well, as you're playing the songs, which I've been doing recently because I've compiled this anthology album, as I'm playing the song, it's like a time machine it whisks me back there as if i was there 
today. It's in, whether it be in the studio recording with Leo or with Daughtry or even at the Bag and Owls. You know, it's it's a wonderful thing, music. It literally can take you back in time. It's it's a, 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 the most powerful vehicle, I think, of all. In a world. In a world where only the best voice will do. Realtimecasting.com. The things you've been involved with at the peaks of your career. Uh, one in particular was Leo Sayer. You discovered Leo. I don't know how you found him, but... Um, oh, right. Well, that, that's a very easy story to tell because when I had finished in that early band of mine, I came back into what I always called Civvy Street because coming back into daily life was quite a shock, really. It was, it was so alien to me. But anyway, I would very quickly had met up with a, with a girl in my hometown and we got married and all that. So, you know, at a very early age. I was about 18 by now. So a very early age. And um, I had this old uh, upright piano and I started to teach myself um, to write on, on the piano, you know, just by playing around with chords because you don't write too many songs on a, on a drum kit. So I'd started to write these songs and I thought to myself, you know, I don't want to be in a band again. I don't want to be a drummer in a band again. I, I want to venture into the other side of the industry uh, and look for new talent and start with songwriting and, and, and all that. So I put an ad in the local newspaper in Brighton and I advertise for talent, basically. I did what, what Simon Cowell is doing now with Britain, You Got Talent. And he actually came from Brighton as well. But uh, anyway, that's another story. Yeah, I think um, it is a story. <laughs> yeah. What I did, I omitted to say in the ad that I wanted music talent. So when I held the auditions in Brighton in a theatre called the Pavilion Theatre in, in the centre of Brighton, they turned up in their droves. And I sat there with a desk and a clipboard as you do, and um, they started to come on stage one by one, and I'm ticking off the names. But, as I say, I didn't limit it to music, so suddenly I had people standing there doing farmyard noises and all sorts. It was, it was ridiculous. So I thought, oh, dear, I've made a mistake here, but anyway, I'll have to just plough myself through this. Unbeknownst to me, I didn't realise that the theatre door had been left open, so when there were music acts going on, the noise was going out into the street, and people were walking past thinking, what was going on in there? So... And they started to filter into the theatre. And before I knew where I was, I looked behind me and I had an audience. I thought, rather than saying, oh, you know, can, I'm sorry, this is a private closed audition, can you please leave? It occurred to me instantly, even at 18 years of age, I thought, at the end of the day, whatever I discover, if I discover anything here, th these are the people that I'm going to be selling it to. So what better way to get a gauge on what's good or not, or not good? Well, let them be here because they'll let you know in one form or another whether they clap boo or whatever. So I thought, well, that's, a, that's worked out quite well. So at about act number 49, and by now I've got a migraine, um, uh, this band came on from a local town called Shoreham, um, and they were called Patches, and they started playing in a very sort of blues type of music, which I thought, well, you know, it's, that's probably fine, but it's not very commercial. We're not going to get far with this. And then suddenly I heard this voice. And when I heard that voice, that was it. It was like a eureka moment. You know, the bells went off in my head. I thought, oh, my God, where is that coming from? And I looked around the band and I saw the drummer wasn't singing, the guitarist wasn't singing, the keyboard player wasn't singing. And then suddenly this little demeaned figure wandered onto the stage, almost like a Shakespearean actor. And this little mob of hair and a small framed body. And as he turned round, the voice came out of there. And I thought, my God. Not only is the voice incredible, but it's coming out of this most unusual person. It's not what you'd expect. You'd think, first of all, I think you'd probably think it was a, 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 a black 
soul singer or something because the voice was so powerful. I thought, my God, I've really found something here. And I signed them up and I'm going to help to try and find you a record deal. I've already started writing some music and I think, you know, I've got a couple of commercial songs that I think would be suitable. And uh, one in particular, which was called Living in America. And I, through a friend, I was introduced to a man called John Burgess, who was working. He was an A&R man at EMI, but he'd now joined George Martin, the Beatles producer, and George had formed a new label called Air Records. And he also owned a studio called Air Studios. Mm -hmm. So I was introduced to John, and I took the band up there to audition for them. And they offered me a contract right there and then. John heard what I heard, and he said, oh, this is it. I'm... And he gave me a contract. So I came back, I came back to Brighton thinking, my God, I've struck gold here. This is it. However, I thought, well, I don't know anything about the contractual side of this business because I've always been a, you know, a musician. So I thought, who do I know that I could go to and ask advice? And there, and there were no lawyers in, in Brighton in those days that would have known their way around the industry, the entertainment industry. Now, at this stage in my life, I'd already long been Adam Faith's drummer and his backing band and we'd become great friends and he'd now lived in out just outside of Brighton so I thought well who better to go and ask for him so I went along with the contract I had Leo although his name wasn't Leo then his name was Jerry I had him in the car and I said you'll have to wait outside I'm going to go in and see him and by then Jerry and I had already started demoing up some earlier these some of these early songs and um at my little apartment in Brighton and I took the tape along with me to, with the contract to Adam and I went in there and I sat down and I could see the look on his face was that same look that I that I probably give when people say oh will you listen to this for me I found this little girl singer and, they, and I think oh my yeah. god you know because it's not that you don't want to help people it's just that the fear that it's not going to be very good and you're going to how am I going to handle this how am I going to give them the bad news so and being a good friend of his he obviously felt the same and even more so he agreed to listen to it so I put the tape on and I sat there very nervously thinking oh god what's he going to think I put the tape on and it was like one of the early demos that Jerry and I had written and he said oh turn the machine off I thought, oh my God, he, he hates it. <laughs> I said, oh, you don't like it? He said, you got a contract there? I said, yes. He said, rip it up. You and I are going to manage this guy and this band and you're going to write the songs. We're going to produce them. And he said, you don't need Air Studios. This is fantastic what you found out. I want to hear more. So he, we played more. And he was getting more and more and more sold. And he said, listen, we're going to do this. I can open up the doors because of who he is. And he said, I'm also going to finance this album, and which he did. And that was how it all kicked out. It was from that moment on that we then started to make that album, Leo's first album, which was called Silverbird. We wrote the whole album together, um, including the hit that came off it called The Show Must Go On. And it, and it just it went on from there. Our next big break came, actually, was when... Uh, through a friend of Adam's who was a man called Keith Ortham, who was the guru PR man, I would say, Keith. He, he was also editor of Melody Maker and NME and all that in his early days. But he was the PR man behind The Who and Mark Bolan and Jimi Hendrix. In fact, he, even, he was the man that got Jimi to set light to his guitar. Um, he, you know, he was a real guru, Keith. And 
and he came along to the rehearsal to see Leo, Leo or Jerry, as he still was at that point, and listened to the band, and he was knocked sideways with it all. And he said, oh, I'm going to introduce you to a friend of mine called Roger Daltrey. So, of course, we know who Roger Daltrey is. He said, because I understand you want to you find another studio, because we'd already done the early recordings at the Manor studio in, yeah. in Oxfordshire, which Richard Branson owns. Yeah, beautiful studio. Yeah, in fact, the, our engineer that we used there was Tom Newman, who had just finished Tubular Bells. So he came straight from that onto our album. And we did about three or four of the tracks there, and then we were looking for another studio, and that's when Keith introduced us to Daltrey, because Daltrey had built this studio in his house down in Sussex. So we went along there, Adam and I went along there to see him and played him what we'd already recorded and said, well, we want to hire a studio. And when he heard what we had done, he was bowled over and he said, oh, not only would I love you to record here, but I want David and Leo, and I'll get to the how he was called Leo in a minute, to write the whole album for me. It'd be my first solo album. And for you, meaning Adam and David to produce it and that's how that introduction came and and that's when we wrote giving it all away and all those songs for Roger and as it transpired the Daughtry album was released before the Leo album and so Roger was on TV talking about this fantastic guy Leo saying da 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 and I was on top of the pops and old grey whistle test playing with Roger and doing giving it all away and that was our first hit but just, just to backtrack on the Leo story, how that came about is that shortly after we'd started recording, I, I realised that Gerard or Jerry wasn't a very good rock and roll name. So I'd often go to the horse racing section because I always find great song titles there. You get some very strange named horses, don't you? Because <laughs> I, always, I always found some great titles there. Anyway, so I was looking through the paper and came across the star signs and there was this image of... Uh, Leo, the star sign Leo with a, a lion with the mane of hair around it and I thought, there you go, it's looking straight at me, I thought, this is him, it's Leo and then I announced that to Adam and told him and he loved it told Leo, Jerry and he hated it <laughs> but he uh, he wouldn't be called anything else now, he got used to it very quickly The Voice for the Voices This is the VO Radio Show because you've worked in studios for years, and this is the question I ask a lot of people, especially who work in, in the music industry, how things have changed. Now, so the first studio you went into was completely analogue. Well, oh, absolutely. And um, first, very first experience of a recording studio as a musician was a studio in London called IBC Studios, which was a legendary studio where the Stones and the Who had all recorded. And, and I was a... I was a 14, 15 at that stage. I think I don't think we were allowed in the control room. I think yeah. we were stuck on the studio floor, to be honest. Anyway, um, my first experience of, of uh, was actually with Leo of being involved with, uh, you know, as a producer. So um, those early studios, and again, like the Daughtry studio, that was an eight-track studio where we would bounce. And so that's really was my first experience of it all and until I then moved into moved up the scale when technology had started to kick in and I was working at Air Studios where they had the beautiful Neve consoles and that and um, and then I remember the day they they'd installed the, the SSL console with the moving faders that was magic that was just to sit there it was George Martin that showed it to me in fact because he, he got it in and it was magnificent so moving away from music, which we've covered quite well, you, you've been living in Brighton. 
You've set up the Brighton Walk of Fame. Yeah, right, yes. Well, yeah. Well, I've also lived, I lived in America for six years. I mean, you know, I, I was recording out there from kind of Sunset Sound and uh, all those studios out in LA, uh, Village Recorders and all those places. Um, every day when I used to go to Sunset Sound Studios and uh, working with Leo, um, I'd walk past the Hollywood Walk of Fame and that, that's what inspired me. I thought, well, why don't we do this in England? We we're not very good at doing these sort of things over here. We, we don't like shouting from the rooftop, you know, unlike the Americans. Yeah. And, and even Australians, really. I mean, they, they go with it. You know, I love the bravado. And yeah, I guess it's because they're, they're younger, new blood countries, you know, and, and they don't have these brick walls in front of them. And this country is so bogged down with tradition that people are scared to, oh, well, we mustn't, mustn't shout too loud. Oh, no, that wouldn't be very cool. Well, that goes, that's alien to me. That's why I loved about Australia and I loved about America. Yeah. Um, they thought of something, you know, they'd go out and do it. And, and that's, that's what it was all about to me. So I was inspired by this Walk of Fame, and I thought, well, when I get back home, I'm going to look into this and see if I can introduce it into into the UK. And especially in Brighton, I thought it was the ideal place to kick it off, because it's Brighton's probably the, the Hollywood equivalent in this country, in England, of where all the, a lot of major stars live and famous people from all sorts of walks of life. And I thought, well, what better place to, to start it? And what I did, the first thing I did, um, and this is the entrepreneur in me, I have to say, I, they now call me a rockpreneur. I don't know about an entrepreneur, they call me a rockpreneur. <laughs> a new term. Um, and um, I thought, right, you know, I'd better uh, look into registering this. So I went through the, the uh, motions of registering it as a trademark. And, and I remember the Hollywood people becoming aware of it and they came to me and said, oh, you can't do this. We own the, we own the Walk of Fame. And I, I said to them, yeah, you own it. You own it in Hollywood. You don't own it anywhere else. So I own it now in the UK. And I have done now since 1997, And we launched the first one, which was in Brighton in 2002. And I did one uh, a few years later, I launched one in Bristol. And we're now about to do a big one in London, which would be the Music Walk of Fame, which would be inter totally international. And there's another big one coming, which will be announced in September, which is going to be based in Manchester. You have your own studios in Brighton, don't you? Yeah, I, I, I don't at the moment. I'm out in the country. I'm just outside of Brighton right now. Um, and I've got to be honest with you, these days, I mean, there, there's a studio that's just been built very near to the to where I live, and I'll be using that. Uh, I, I didn't I didn't really want all the aggro that went with it, to be honest with you. Yeah. I had studios. I, I had rehearsal rooms, and I had studios in Brighton. I had a studio called Area 51. To be honest with you, now I, I create and I, I, I write. I'm still writing a keyboard, but I use uh, music programming. I use Logic and I and I use uh, an Apple, you know, and 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 I use a laptop. Yep. And you know, it's like a, like a band in a box, isn't it? Really. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You. Do, I mean, studios have been hard hit because of this. You know, technology has you know has killed off the middleman, really, isn't it? You know, that's what's happened here. Well, I think you got, it's actually broken that, yeah, taking out the middle piece, you got the, you know, because it, the home studio really is a booth, but it's nothing, nothing more than that, um, unless you're writing music and then you can write music, but you still want to go into a decent studio to get that, that sound. Especially if you're recording a band, you know, you can't, you can't do that in, in, your, in your bedroom. Although in saying that, you know, you know I still reverse, revert to this. If you listen back to that original recording of Eddie Cochran, Summertime Blues, that was recorded in the garage. 
on a, on what was a, probably a two-track tape recorder. And if you listen back to it again now, the quality of that recording with the drum sound and his guitar sound, unreal. Now, there was one thing that, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but I thought you got involved in audiobooks at one point. I did. Um, well, as you reminded me earlier on, um, a dear friend of mine, Sylvia Anderson, um, from the Thunderbirds fame and, and with her husband, Jerry, created all those fantastic uh, series on television Space 1999 and yeah. all those fantastic shows that we grew up with um, she became a really good friend of mine and um, and she landed up actually at one point becoming the head of HBO in, in the UK based at Pinewood and that's probably when was it at that point that we probably yeah yeah, it was. We had that's she um, organised lunch because I was living there, and she um, wanted us to meet. So that's right. It was you and um, yeah, it was you and uh, Tony Klinger. And Tony Klinger, yeah, yeah. So when Sylvia did her autobiography called My Fab Years, which was a wonderful book, fantastic photographs, and she a wonderful collection of photographs. I suggested to her because I'd always loved the idea of audio books. I always thought you know they were great, and I thought. Well, a great opportunity here because of her speaking voice. She's got the most wonderful speaking voice. I thought, well, why not do it as an audiobook? And I would take my laptop to her house and we would sit there and we would um, record it. And we recorded the whole book uh, uh, as an audiobook, My Fab Years, which is available through audible.com. It's still there, still available. Um, and she told all those wonderful stories and... Um, yeah, it, it was a fantastic experience. And then another friend of mine that you may remember from many years ago, uh, a man called Leonard Whiting. He, uh, he with, a, with an actress called Olivia Hussey, they were like the early versions of the Beckhams, I guess. They were in Romeo and Juliet, Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet, and they were the big hot number at the time. And Leonard and I had always stayed friends over the years, and... He was writing, and he's got a lovely speaking voice as well, and he'd written um, some children's stories and recorded one with um, Peter Ustinov. So when I was starting to look into this audiobook side of things, I thought, oh, right, and here's an opportunity. And I asked Leonard if he still had the tapes and the masters, which he did, and I said, let's, let's put it into an audiobook and put it out there. And, and that's really where it sort of went from there, really. Uh, I did my own, as you probably know, I did... Um, I sat down and recorded a, what was really an early version of my autobiography, and I, only then I called it an audio biography, which some people would, couldn't quite get their heads around. I said, what is an audio biography? And I said, well, it says what it is in the yeah. title. Um, and my idea there, which I think I did execute quite well, was to tell my story, but rather than just in dialogue, I wanted to use the music. So... It had music back to back throughout the whole the whole uh, book, and um, which gave it that sort of the same sort of thing you really get on radio when they do a radio uh, uh, profile on someone. Yeah. You've got the music under the bed, the better music underneath when you're talking, and then you bring up the faders, and then you it comes into the song, and you're explaining what what went on at the session, and then you go in and you hear the song, which is wonderful. Um, Audio books are becoming the biggest, like in the voiceover community, that is the 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 biggest frontier now wow and is that because people just want to sit and listen rather than read now or what? yes and also the other thing is it's a resource that would never end it's infinite absolutely and and the wonderful thing about an audio book especially when it's the person 
say it's an autobiography and it, it, it's the person themselves that's speaking it because I, I never like that idea of when you know you go and buy say Michael Caine's book or something and it's not him talking to you it's somebody else talking yeah. and that you know you don't like I don't like that So, but the wonderful thing is if it is Michael Caine you've got him in your head haven't you he's, he's like he's sitting there talking to you but uh, that is that there's a boom industry uh, well, you know, you've, you've obviously got a lot of knowledge in this Andrew and uh, maybe you and I should talk about it at some point here uh, you, have you built your own company up around this or, or you're just doing the uh, podcasting I've got another business which is linked to this as well called uh, Real Time Casting it's for professional voice actors to be represented online but there's obviously plenty of work still for a voiceover artist and she- yeah absolutely and it's growing and that's the the thing about it so it's a matter of trying to rein it in so it doesn't get out of control because it as it gets bigger then you tend to lose control it's like the music industry you know i mean who sells a record these days because the delivery methods have changed i'm glad to see vinyl sort of made some sort of a comeback it'll never come back the way it was originally but it it's lovely to see those album sleeves again you know they were pieces of artwork weren't they you know oh, you know you, you look at them now they they are and then they get shrunk and stuck onto what they used to be on a cassette which was appalling and now they're stuck on this cd and then they're going as well so exactly yes so we better act quick <laughs> yeah exactly exactly yeah. david it's been lovely talking to you and uh i wish you all the best with your autobiography and your anthology which is out on september the 4th oh Okay, save up your pennies. Could be in your dad's Christmas stocking. Thanks, Andrew. Cheers. The VO Radio Show is produced in the studios of Voodoo Sound. Radio. TV. Find it all at voodoo-sound.com. Well, there you go. That was David Courtney, the man who discovered Leo Sayer, worked with Roger Daltrey. Uh, In fact, he's worked with so many people. Uh, couldn't mm. even list them all off. He's got his uh, anthology release now, 50 Years in the Business. The album's out, and uh, his autobiography is also available. I think you can get it through Amazon, if my memory serves me well. Mm. Interesting You're hanging chat. with a lot of famous musicians, mate. I, I, I'm waiting for the next, you know, I'm waiting for the big single to come out or something. Yeah, with me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, with you. Yeah, yeah. keep it quiet. Get all these guys together. Surely you can put something together. That's right. We can do like a We Are the World or something. You, you know. could be the first Australian to become a famous singer without having to go on The Voice or one of these, you know, X Factors or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should go on The Voice. Maybe you should go on The Voice. There you go. Yeah, with yeah. a bit of help. For comedy value and for, apart from anything else. <laughs> Anyway, enough of that. Next week... Enough of that. Yeah, next week we're going to be talking with uh, Robert Lee, who Mm. you would know the voice of from the TV series Mythbusters. That's right. And most Mm. people would think, oh, he's in America. But no, 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 you'll be wrong. No. He's uh, based in Sydney and... I think think we should stop calling it Sydney and just call it the centre of the universe. (laughs) (laughs) I can think of the centre of something, but it's not the universe. (laughs) But it does sound Latin. It does. But, uh, yeah, so Robert Lee next week. Nice. I'll be here. All right. Beautiful. (laughs) See you then. See you next week. (laughs) You idiot. The VO Radio Show is produced in the studios of Voodoo Sound. To polish your next audio production, check us out at voodoo-sound.com. Find professional voices simply all in one place. Realtimecasting.com, including me.